This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. When New York Times Magazine calls and asks you for an interview, then publishes a very lengthy interview, you know you have arrived. That's certainly the case for Father Mike. Although his interview's headline is rather odd, Catholic podcasting star says theocracy is not the way. I think there might be one question there about theocracy. Why does it make the headline? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So why are so many on Twitter praising this article as a solid story about some controversial issues, and what's up with that word theocracy (laughs) in the headline? Let's take the second question first. When you look through this lengthy interview with this podcasting priest, it's pretty clear that the big idea of what he's saying is we live in a world that's both glorious and fallen. It's good, but it's broken, and that includes you, and God loves you anyway. At the same time, he's going to immediately follow up with the Catholic message is that God wants his love to help change you. And when you consider some of the issues that they're talking about in here, that's pretty standard, small-o Orthodox Catholic thought. Basically, the only thing that occurs in this piece that would give you a kind of a New York Times political headline is this quote where he does use the word that basically in America, everybody has rights. We have to take that in into account. And he says several things the Times would normally find very controversial. He uses the famous John Adams quote that this is a representative republic. He knows he said republic, not democracy. That can only be successful if we're a moral and religious people because we'd be informed by a standard outside of ourselves that we answer to. This makes sense to me. Um, and he says, my perspective is we're not trying to run anybody's life, but at the same time, we don't want the government running our life. Well, that's a bunch of controversial and very interesting stuff. What gets yanked up into the headline is, but I'm not talking about theocracy. I'm talking about government of the people, by the people, for the people, which means all of us get a say from the deeply religious to the convicted atheists and everyone in between. No one gets to ram it down anyone else's throat, but we all have a say. Now, right now, most of the conservatives that I read are basically defending this kind of a concept, which in many occasions I've called a kind of an old concept of liberalism, as opposed to some of what we now hear people calling progressive thought or whatever. So he's not saying anything controversial. And so the people that I've talked to that have praised how he handled this interview and even praised the fact that the New York Times ran this interview, they're looking past the headline. They're looking past the headline and getting into what we can learn by how this priest handled himself in this interview and the fact 
that there apparently he did not assume ill will on the part of the journalist, and the journalist demonstrates some pretty important credibility in this piece in terms of a familiarity with Father Mike's work, maybe if not with the catechism. It's being praised because it's an actual healthy exchange between a journalist and a religious leader in the public square. And we live in the kind of age where that's a near miraculous event in and of itself. So I'm hearing people saying, what can we learn from this piece? So before we leave the headline behind, what is clickbait and was the word theocracy included in the headline as an example of clickbait? Well, it's a hook to New York Times readers. It's basically saying, hey, here's something we know you will care about. So this gets us back to another truth our listeners really need to understand. What the Internet has done to journalism needs to be understood on two different levels. And both of them, I'm afraid, are kind of technical, you know, instead of just yelling and screaming about it. Number one, it's it's all but killed online advertising. Almost all online advertising now belongs to the giants, meaning Google, Facebook, and all of those folks. And stripped of most of their ad revenue, most newsrooms now are functioning off the revenue from digital subscriptions. And the New York Times in the Trump era soared to massive heights in terms of new subscription to their newspaper digitally, which means all over the country, people that we would kind of all making air quotes around the phrase, New York Times type people all subscribe to the New York Times. There was a, a joke in a David Brooks book years ago where I believe he, he said something like, back when they were still delivering the New York Times in blue bags, he said that you could look at any major city in America and look at certain neighborhoods and the blue bags could be spotted from space. And what he meant by that is there were New York Times type neighborhoods in every American city. There were New York Times reader belts in old suburbs in the old historic home neighborhoods with the Volvos in their driveways. I guess now that would be Tesla's except some people don't like Tesla because Elon Musk is, you know, a conservative or something. But anyway, an appropriate New York Times typed car in the driveway and their blue bag with their New York Times being delivered. So what I'm saying about this headline is this is a headline written to New York Times magazine readers saying, hey, there's something in this article that we know you will want to read about. And here's a word to prove it. And that word, of course, is theocracy. I want to know how he did this, how he managed to do the two things you mentioned there, which was not assume ill will on the part of the reporter, and then be able to engage with answers that are, I mean, he, he doesn't back down from Catholic teaching, at least on the questions where he was queried here by the reporter. Yeah, well, number one, it says this is a two-part interview. It's clear that there were some negotiations going on between this writer, who is a New York Times Magazine writer, and this priest. And at one point, the author 
says, I ask if you could send me the names of some books that are important to you, all of which you read. Okay, now if you look at the little red number to the footnote, so here's who the priest sent him. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, Peter Kreft's Christianity for Modern Pagans, and Walter Sizek's He Leadeth Me, for which, for what I like best, I like the C.S. Lewis book the best, the guy says. Well, those are three really good books, and the author of this piece, the journalist, read them. He also said that he had read most of Father Mike's books and listened to a lot of his podcast. Now, I guarantee you that part of accepting this interview was in their contacts. This guy asked questions that showed Father Mike he wasn't lying about that. And that, you know, that really hit me. That's a lot of homework to get ready for an interview. I remember once I was invited to interview two members of the, the top Council of Twelve of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I probably read 600, 800 pages of material to get ready for that interview because I knew I wanted to show to them I knew my stuff. And this is above whatever I did studying that particular faith in graduate school in a course I took about new religious movements in the history of American religion. So this guy did his homework. And so part of what makes this interview a success is the person doing the interview, he, he appears to sort of have been coming into this wanting a gotcha interview, like I'm going to get you to say something, but he didn't push it. All I can really say is he showed sympathy for Father Mike's work by doing his homework, and he showed professionalism by doing his homework. Now, that gets into whether or not he handled himself well in the interview, and by that I mean the interviewer. And I would actually say that there's one very important point in the interview where he misses an opportunity to ask a hard, and I would have thought very fair question to this priest. And the priest probably could have answered it. He couldn't have answered about it in specific cases. When he gets into, ultimately, what happens when you're dealing with someone who you're telling them God loves you, but they're wrestling with a decision about an abortion, or they're wrestling with a decision about sexual activity outside of marriage, and specifically same-sex marriage, which is, as you would expect in a New York Times piece, something like a third or half of the content of this piece. The interviewer doesn't press to say, are you telling me that in confession you wouldn't tell this person that their actions are sin? And I think that would have been a perfectly fair question. And if the priest said, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to say to someone in confession, I'm telling you how I handle the relationship that leads up to them being willing to come to confession. You know, I don't know how he would have responded, but that would have been a fair question to have asked. So the journalist shows professionalism, and this is the rare case where you've got conservative Catholics out there saying, gosh, this is a good interview, and we don't quite know how to deal with that. The New York Times interviews somebody, especially as long as this interview is, other people are obviously going to, going to interview them. What are your expectations for those other kind of second-tier, not-as-professional 
interviews of Father Mike? Well, first of all, I don't know whether he will accept them, whether he will accept the interviews. It could be at this point, once you've been interviewed by the New York Times, you may not need to accept that interview with National Public Radio. You may not need to accept that interview with a, another liberal publication such as The Guardian. You might back off if you're hearing some murmurs from Catholics that you aren't quite strong enough. You might accept a good, solid question-and-answer interview with The Pillar or another alternative Catholic website, either on the left or the right. But once again, you're looking for people who know what they're talking about, and you're looking for people who demonstrate a professional demeanor about what they're doing. But let me mention one other thing. It's been years since you and I talked about this. I always advise religious leaders, when they accept an interview with a major publication, say to the journalist, oh, I'm willing to accept this interview as long as you will let me record the interview as well. I know you're going to record the interview. We hope this will be a verbatim Q&A type interview, but I want to record it as well, and I would retain the right to do my own transcript and post it at my own website if there are any questions surrounding why I said what I said. Or the classic situation is where you make one quote the Times likes, and then you like make another one where you quote the catechism or something and they don't like it, so they don't include that in the interview, and they don't tell the readers that that part was removed. I always think it's best in this Internet age for religious leaders to retain the ability to say, okay, but if we're doing this interview, I'm going to record it as well. And I get to have my own transcript. By the way, when I did that interview with the Mormon leaders long, long ago, one of the men involved in the interview became prophet of the church eventually. I recorded the interview, and I didn't know it at the time, but they definitely recorded it too, because a couple of days later, a transcript of the interview showed up on my desk at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, and the church had done the almost full transcript. But I noticed that they had left some quotes out, and those were crucial quotes. And because I had my copy of the tape, I wrote them back and said, my tape shows the following quote 25 minutes into the interview, and I intend to use that quote in my article. That's a two-sided coin. That's both sides of the notebook during this interview. And I think both people involved in this interview have a right to handle themselves in a professional manner. So, Terry, what among the answers that were given by Father Mike, which ones kind of stood out to you the most? I thought it was interesting that he just openly says to a New York Times reporter, we still believe that original sin is true. First of all, he's using the word sin. That's a word that you're probably not used to seeing serious discussions of in the New York Times anytime recently. I guess some unless it was the sins of the religious right or something. But he does a, a lot of this in the context of both the discussions of abortion and the discussion of same-sex attraction. But he, he basically says, we live in an entire world, an entire creation that is broken 
it's still, I like the cultural mandate phrase, that it's glorious but fallen. He just keeps saying it's good but it's broken. And the fact that the New York Times guy doesn't quite know how to handle that, or maybe he saw that same concept in the work of Peter Crift or C.S. Lewis, because it's in both of the books he read. Maybe it's remarkable that the New York Times just had to accept that. This is what this man believes. We live in a world where people are good, but they are broken. And the priest says, almost everyone I minister with is struggling to some degree at some point in their life with some sort of brokenness about sexuality. And they're going to have to, at some point, have to decide, does God love me as who I am? And, he says, am I going to let God love me the way I am? Stage three, is God's love going to have anything to do with changing me? Now, if you do a little bit of homework on Father Mike, you'll find out that there are liberal Catholics who are very, very mad at him because he does believe that gay Catholics have a right to go to counselors as adults and receive counseling on how to deal with their temptations and how to deal with their sexuality. And I want to kind of draw a parenthesis around this for our listeners. I really think that a lot of Protestants need to be paying attention to a group of Catholic writers who I don't know what else to call them, but they are openly gay or lesbian writers, yet they support the teachings of their church on sexual behavior. They believe their orientation, they're struggling with their orientation, they believe that it's either permanent or they haven't been shown a way out, but they still believe that they should be faithful to the teachings of their church. I think the writings of some of these Catholics and men such as Father Mike, who obviously deals with a lot of Catholics on this issue, I think listening to how they're handling this issue is something a lot of Protestants could learn from. And that's another place in this article where the New York Times writer could have pressed him harder, and I was surprised he didn't. So he mentioned essentially original sin, but I noticed in the answer on the reporters trying to, quote, get his head around the the Catholic position on homosexuality as right. intrinsically disordered, which I think is very, very useful language that non-Catholics ought to adopt. But he seems to whiff a little bit there, kind of opting to say, well, I want to know where the questions are coming from. And would the reporter have been well within the bounds to say, is homosexuality a sin? Well, yeah, and that's what I meant by saying the reporter lets him talk about how he prepares for this relationship with a person and perhaps how that moves to the state of going to confession, but he doesn't follow through and say, well, you're telling me that in, what in confession you don't tell someone that sexual activity outside of marriage is a sin. That's another way of saying what you just said. So I don't know whether that's the reporter whiffing on this issue or the priest. I think I would say that it's the reporter. I don't think the priest at that point is going to say, as a Catholic, as a penitent who has come to confession for the forgiveness of their sins, oh, at that point I'm willing to say that the catechism isn't all that important. We'll just look the other way. I don't think you're going to see this priest say that. I don't 
Now, if there are many priests who would say that, certainly they wouldn't say it to the New York Times. But that's the place in the article that I think the reporter could have actually and validly have been a bit more aggressive. Because I don't think we know what Father Mike would say at that point. Other than when you look at the books he asked him to read, and when you look at his own books, it's pretty clear he's going to defend the church's teachings. Why was the New York Times Magazine interested in Father Mike? Why did they devote this much space to him? Well, I think the sheer success of his podcast is a large part of that. I mean, they're, they're dealing here with someone with a massive audience. It would be similar to the fact that a lot of major publications, the Los Angeles Times and others, have done lengthy interviews with Bishop Robert Barone who for until recently was the auxiliary bishop of Los Angeles. In effect, he was the bishop of Hollywood. And then Rome has now moved him back somewhere in the Midwest. I forget what his current diocese is now. But this is a guy, once again, with tremendous amounts of media, I wouldn't say success as much as I would say experience. I think you know, and you have a, the ability to listen to this guy know how he handles these controversial topics in his own podcasts and elsewhere. I think the reporter knew this guy is going to be a good talker. This guy is going to say interesting things. And I think New York Times readers might be willing to listen to this kind of Catholic. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's a lot of controversy right now about what's going on at CNN. And I've had lots of people say, Mattingly, what do you think is happening at CNN? Why are they firing all the liberals and they're going to turn into the new Fox News? Well, I'm not expecting CNN to turn into the new Fox News. And I'm not sure they, from my perspective, they shouldn't want to. But at the same time, you know, it's it makes a certain sense to say, you know, if we're struggling with ratings, or in the case of the New York Times, we'd like to sell more subscriptions, maybe we should admit that there's another half of the United States. Maybe it would be good for uh, our economic bottom line if we had more readers slash listeners slash viewers who were from the center right people who would be willing to have a second thoughts about whether to write off the New York Times, maybe we should have a show of goodwill to them. And I, I think that's a perfectly valid reason to do interviews of this kind. It's one of the reasons, quite frankly, in my own national column, I frequently write about topics and people write in and say, Mattingly, why in the world did you want to write about that? And I said, well, A, it's interesting. B, it's, it's on the record. These things were said in public media. It was said in interviews, whatever. And I think my readers will enjoy hearing what these people have to say. My column last week was an example of that. I had people ask me, why in the world did I want to write a column about the atheist Sam Harris taking shots at the Christian idea of heaven? And I said, well, he's a major figure. He's a quote machine. He's articulate. He's a very important atheist apologist or even atheist evangelist, if that's not too strange a term. And writing a column about what he said 
allowed me to then have someone from the other side respond to his concerns. And I think that makes an interesting column. And someone told me, well, but I was still offended by what Sam Harris said. And I said, well, okay, it's your right to be offended. But did you learn anything from what he said? Did you learn anything about what the, the other side of that debate thinks? That appears to have been the motive for this interview in the New York Times with Pastor Mike. And if that was the motive by this reporter, I would simply say that's a logical and valid journalistic motive. Bravo. Well done. Carry on. Shoot me an email, and I'd be glad to give you 20 other people that you could interview to have similar interesting conversations. With 30 seconds here, then with the New York Times readers, is Father Mike going to be good religion or bad religion in typical journalism? See, I think they're going to be mixed. I think they're going to consider him bad religion, but at the same time, they're going to say, this guy didn't come off the way I thought he would. And if that makes them interested in dialoguing with believing Catholic thinkers and with the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church, that's a plus both for the newsroom of the New York Times and it's a plus for the readers of the New York Times. Pure and simple, both sides should see this as a healthy exchange. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.